If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Great Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Catherine Moraz is a board-certified genetic counselor. She received her Master's of Science in Genetic Counseling from Northwestern University in 2009. She has started cancer and high-risk GI clinics in Chicago, California, and Houston, and specializes in GI cancer counseling. She has a special interest in the genetics of pancreatic cancer and pancreatitis. Kate, thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, yeah, of course. So you've been a genetic counselor for 11 years, um, and you started several different cancer and high-risk GI clinics, um, and it's not as common for genetic counselors to specialize in GI cancer counseling. What led you into GI cancer counseling? Um, and I know you have a special interest in pancreatic cancer. Yeah, so my, um, it, I don't think I really planned it that way when I was a student. I actually had only seen... Um, This might surprise the people that were at my very first job, (laughs) but um, I actually had only seen two GI cases when I was a student um, during my cancer rotation because there just always tends to be a higher proportion of breast cancer referrals over and then GI comes in second usually. Um, And so when I was looking for uh, a position. I mean, I I really had my heart set on a cancer rotation. And then I also had my heart set on staying in the Chicago area, which is kind of a big no-no when you are looking for a job. You either pick a specialty or you pick a city, as you know. And so picking both is is kind of a challenge. And then you kind of wait it out uh, as long as you can. But Chicago is a pretty decent sized city. Like you've, you know, not impossible to get that. I guess it wasn't impossible for you. It is. And so I, uh, so luckily um, I actually got the second position that had, that had kind of come up. So I, I had a a good sized class. Um, Northwestern graduates in March. Um, So we graduate a bit earlier than a lot of the other programs. Um, So it kind of gives us a head start for, finding jobs. And so my uh, a position freed up at um, one of the academic hospitals, and it happened to be in the GI division, but it was the only cancer counseling position in the hospital. It just happened to be through GI. So because of the concentration being in the GI department, it just happened to attract more GI patients. And then it really was in the infancy of the program. Um, so there was a lot of 
a target towards marketing and advertising. I mean, part of my job was also building the website. So um, I, you know, within the first year that I was there, I really focused energy on um, developing universal tumor screening, um, which was um, very, which is new, very new at the time. Right. And, and that was a big undertaking, especially as a new grad. Um, and, and luckily that was successful. Um, but it definitely had me have an, a relationship with the GI department, the surgery department, the oncologist, as well as pathology. And I was very close with all of them. Um, and I think that that definitely got me very intertwined with all of them, kept communications up and also kept relationships very open in terms of um, patient care and then follow up um, on each aspects of care. And then the way that we wanted to build the program was to actually do kind of a high risk follow up. So when patients came in, we would also, um, they wouldn't just see the, see me. And then if they chose to do genetic testing, then they do testing, they hear the results, and then they wouldn't really see me again. Um, they'd actually, if they met, had any kind of high risk aspect of their care, I would actually continuously see them. So for if they continued care for additional endoscopies, I would see them for all of their follow-up appointments. And a lot of them I'd actually, um, if it was okay with the patient, I'd see a lot of, I'd shadow some of their scopes. So I would see that other aspect of their care as well. So I'd be really intricate in their continued follow-up um, and kind of one of the quarterbacks of their continuous care, um, which was very helpful, especially as more information was being learned about hereditary GI cases. We were learning about more um, genes um, to be considered for different cases, um, more preventative options for them. Um, and it just kind of left another person that was on the team that was watching um, the patients and making sure that they were staying on track for their care. Yeah, that sounds pretty ideal. Right. And so I, I don't think that there have been a lot of clinics that necessarily operate like that, especially with a genetic counselor being involved necessarily in that way. Um, and then uh, I also opened up a clinic at the VA as well um, and then followed uh, patients um, in a similar way. Um, and, and that gave me a whole other, uh, a whole other look into another um, system because the VA has their own um, systems that play that are outside of a whole academic um they're in maddening systems. <laughs> oh, right. They are. They, um, it's it's kind of like you have maybe five or six extra steps that you might not necessarily have at <laughs> the other location that you have. And so when you think that, oh, it's just going to be this and then this, and then you think, oh, no, that's going to really take four more, six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps more. But then, you know, realizing that and then eventually getting accustomed to that, you know, you get to know that process. And that actually was super helpful, especially, you know, even years later, whenever I've seen patients who have had family members who have been part of the VA, or they weren't sure if, you know, they just didn't even consider genetics as part of the process that they could even contemplate. 
just knowing that whole VA process has been invaluable because I've been able to mention, you know, these are questions you need to ask. This is probably the process that you're going to have to go about. If your physician would like to contact me and ask me some questions, I already know who they're most likely contracted with in terms of genetic testing. And just knowing that part has been very helpful regardless of what state that I've worked in. Um, So that has really been very helpful um, in that process. And then just being able to to move about different systems er so early on in my career was very helpful because when I have moved to different opportunities in my career, um, you know, I've, I've worked in community hospitals where they've, you know, use different kind of systems. Um, you, you know, you kind of see different, um, see different needs. So you just kind of adjust a little bit to see what's needed. And, and, uh, you know, the GIs are, uh, someone once told me that, GIs kind of need, they have two different kind of focuses. They have a clinical focus and a procedural focus. And I I learned that really early on. So in terms of how you market to them, in terms of how you talk to them, you know, I, they, uh, one of. So procedural would be like scopes. What would an example of a clinical focus be? So the clinical focus is, you know, when someone comes in and they have symptoms and talking about, you know, you know, if they've had bleeding or they've had running through which symptoms I necessarily want to see on a podcast <laughs> um, uh, well I, I mean the tricky things with the right. eye is like most of the symptoms nobody wants to talk about which right, is one exactly. of the reasons it's hard to get people tested and identified for uh, hereditary GI syndromes because right. so people I like mean, talking about breast cancer and they don't like talking about GI syndromes. exactly so I mean so some of the things which I also kind of mentioned to my patients is that, you know, when I take family history and that comment's so true, because when I take family histories, I mentioned that, um, it's, uh, when we go through the family history questions, I try to send them to them ahead of time if I can. And I say, you know, you normally just have to ask women in the family if they've had a mammogram and if, if they've had an abnormal one, or anything that's out of the ordinary, women normally just open up right up and and you don't really have to probe them about it. They will just tell you. It doesn't matter if they're a chatty aunt or a not chatty aunt. But when you get to the GI (laughs) track, I say, so I'd also like to know if anyone in the family has had a colonoscopy and if if yes, if they've had any polyps and, you know, bonus points, if anyone can get any pathology reports on them. And, um, and I say the same thing about, about prostate screening too, because sometimes when it gets to different areas or different organ systems, you know, people, for some reason, people just aren't as chatty when it gets to different, um, parts of the body. Um, but, you know, sometimes when people have symptoms when they're talking to a GI and they have, um, you know, symptoms like um, they they ask them about, you know, how many bowel movements they have and, and you know, if they have abdominal pain, um, sometimes when uh, people are being evaluated for pancreatitis, for example, they ask them about abdominal pain as well um, and descriptors of that as well. 
Um, people ask about a lot of environmental questions, you know, do they smoke? Um, do they have diabetes? Um, and, and, you know, I'm not talking about one specific GI element because I'm not working anybody up here. Um, but they, they ask about a lot of, of different kinds of questions and stuff to get a full picture of what's going on. But they also ask about descriptors of what's going on with them because that can also map out a lot of what could be going on with the GI tract. Because the thing is, the GI tract is very, um, it, it covers a lot of different areas. And so then they kind of have to play detective. And then that can also target what kind of procedure might be warranted for them. Um, and then whether or not genetics might play a role in that, that's a whole other aspect of it. You've had several different positions now in GI cancer counseling. Are there certain uh, patient stories, patients who you worked with over time that have really stuck with you? Um, yeah, there's a lot of them. I actually remember most of the patients I've ever seen. Um the 11 years of knowledge just tucked away in my brain. <laughs> 11 years of aces. Um, a lot of the families I think about, especially from the GI aspect, I mean, there have been families where, I mean, from a, a polyp side of it, I can think of a family where they were followed since they were eight years old. And I mean, it was actually one of the first families that I had ever um, looked at. And I was trying to figure out what was going on with them. And I actually did a laundry list of looking at all the different kinds of polyps that they had between one brother and the other. And they were already in their 30s and early 40s and um, counting up every kind of polyp that they had in their GI system. Um, And you know, over the years, different types of hereditary GI conditions had been thrown out as possibilities in their charts over the years. And it was really rewarding when we actually figured out what kind of hereditary GI condition they actually had. And uh-huh. then, and, and testing uh, and offering them confirmatory testing. And then um, and, and then unfortunately, one of their daughters actually had it as well, um, who was 10 years old, but it actually gave the the opportunity to screen her. And then thinking about they were eight when they actually started having polyps. Mm-hmm. They went from eight to their late 30s without having an answer, with having people kind of just screen as they go and not have an answer. But you know, you have this this kiddo who um, might who is gonna actually have a clarified answer and a clarified care plan for her. So I think that that was um, that was one of the first mysteries that I kind of got in on, um, and I think that that was very rewarding to to see. Uh, what syndrome did it end up being? So it was actually juvenile polyposis syndrome, which juvenile doesn't necessarily mean young. It's actually a type of polyp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was due to a SMAD4 mutation, um, which causes both juvenile polyposis syndrome as well as hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's pretty rare, right? SMAD4 mutations are? 
Right. It is pretty rare. Um, and so I think it, it was uh, interesting because there were so many different types of polyp pathologies um, in the colons. And I think that that was really kind of what was throwing um, people off when they were looking at the GI tract. Um, you think of almost every type of polyp pathology when you were looking at this, uh, at their, at their colons and their, and their small bowel, and you would see that kind of pathology. And then I was looking back and I was seeing that retention polyps were coming up a lot. And then when I was reading some studies, I was really reading that retention polyps and juvenile polyps were actually interchangeable phrases. Hmm. And so um, that is actually when they ended up getting further testing and we had a confirmatory diagnosis. Um, and this is at this point early in your career, this is before panels had become common, right? Is that right? So it's like, it's right. not like you would have just been like, oh, we're going to order the colon panel and then SMAD4 happens to be on there. Right. They had had, I think we were up to, I when I got into the they had already had testing for three other hereditary GI conditions. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, as you know, for tiered testing, so tiered testing, like the stepwise where you get testing for one gene and then you get testing for another gene. I mean, families get kind of burnt out. Yeah. And so, you know, every few years they'd get kind of lost to follow up. And I mean, you, and then you kind of, I'd actually try and get them to come in together. So I kind of talked to them together by the time that I finally figured out what was going on with them. How have you seen that change in genetic testing approach from more stepwise to panels uh, impact patients and how you work with patients? So I think that, so panel-wise, it's actually been really exciting. The um, So there is another family that I had uh, uh, um, more recently, um, so panels came out in 2013 and, um, there is a, a lady that had had breast cancer in her fifties, had had BRCA testing, which came back negative, didn't find any reason for why she had had her breast cancer, but then in her sixties had had pancreatic cancer, um, and she saw me, and she had this huge family history of breast cancer on both sides. Um, and unfortunately, her parents um, had both passed away, and most of her aunts and uncles had, well, all of her aunts and uncles had passed away too. So unfortunately, no testing could be pursued by them. But panels really made it a possibility for me to say, hey, you know, we, there's some updates a slight update for BRCA1 and 2 testing since the last time you had testing, but also there's a boatload of genes to look at with regards to uh, breast cancer and possible contributing risk factors to your prior breast cancer. And, you know, outside of the prior testing you had for BRCA1 and 2 with regards to pancreatic cancer, there's also a handful of genes that we can test with regards to pancreatic cancer, some that overlap with breast cancer and some that don't. And so it makes sense to offer this testing to you and we can do it all at one time as opposed to you coming back multiple times and getting sick of my face. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not that my patients don't want to become best friends with me. I'm super cheery when they talk to me. <laughs> And they all know my face super well um, at the places that I've been. But uh, I don't think that their goal is to become best friends with me. <laughs> um, so um, in that family, they we actually did find a mutation in PELB2, which is a gene that functions uh, very similarly to BRC2. It just doesn't have as high of cancer risks. But, you know, we found that out within one test. And so then the next step is, you know, talking to doing counseling about recommendations and then family counseling. So it really speeds up the conversation of, you know, we have an answer or this is the next step. And then we can talk about family recommendations, you know, as opposed to really elongating out that process of let's test oh we do or don't have an answer and if we don't have an answer we're just still in that pause and that pause might take weeks months years we're not sure and you know has really expedited a lot of care processes for so many patients and for pancreatic cancer particularly about 10 percent of them seem to be coming up with a genetic cause when we're looking at them right now. Um, so that's really significant when it comes to testing, especially for the prognosis for pancreatic cancers on the most part. Pancreatic cancer doesn't have a strong evidence-based screening approach that's known to be really effective the way something like breast cancer or colon cancer does. But in your practice with positive genetic testing results, you've actually seen those results influence the care that patients get and their opportunities for some screening of the pancreas. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So when we were uh, within the first few months that I was in Texas at my position, um, I actually gave a talk to the GI group there about hereditary GI conditions, um, just kind of as an introduction to me being there. And it was actually for the fellows, but a lot of the attendings showed up and it was, it was a really wonderful talk with them. And we got to the point of talking about pancreatic cancer, um, which is, is very near and dear to my heart. Um, actually, because my, my uncle actually passed away from pancreatic cancer when he was 26, he was diagnosed at 25. Um, and incredible, incredibly young, even for hereditary cancer. Yes, it is. So, uh, but when I was, uh, when I was a student actually, and I, you know, we all learned how to take family histories by taking each other's family histories, as you know. Um, and you know, I, I knew it was young, but people didn't really talk much about it. Um, in part actually, because, you know, genetic testing for pancreatic cancer at that time, that all by itself really wouldn't have flagged anyone to offer genetic testing just by having that family history, um, mm -hmm. which is so different from today. So um, when I was talking to the GIs, I was talking about, you know, which conditions really uh, we would offer pancreatic screening, which at that time is really mainly Putz-Jaeger syndrome. And um, I was talking about how a lot of how there are, well, not a lot. There are, were a handful of conditions where, you know, we could offer pancreatic screening, but it really had to be in a protocol setting um, per the NCSAN guidelines. 
and uh, there were not really stringent clarifications about, you know, what to offer, how often to do it, what age. Um, and it would be really great to, you know, come up with a protocol and a program for to do how to do this. And, you know, they were very excited about this opportunity. And, you know, within a few months, we actually had something written up and we um, we started offering high risk pancreatic screening. Um, and so we um, and we had that going for for several years, actually. Um, and, and it continues to be ongoing. And so luckily there are several groups that have gotten together since then. Um, there are, well, CAPS, um, has been established since a little bit, since, um, before, well, it was established before. So we had that to kind of go off of, um, and then the ACG guidelines, um, also were established in 2015, um, which also gave some additional guidance um, as well, which kind of builds off of CAPS. Um, so CAPS is a consensus um, statements, which is great because it also it pulls from people. It's a multidisciplinary consensus, so it pulls people from multiple di- disciplines. So um, a lot of the findings, as you mentioned, in the pancreas, sometimes they are straightforward, but sometimes the plans and findings are not as straightforward. So it is really helpful to have the the use of a multidiscipline group. So you have people, you know, sometimes, you know, my genetics background only goes so far once you find something in a pancreas. <laughs> but, you know, having a team that has GI and oncology and surgery and radiology and pathology, and I might, I'm probably forgetting someone, but you know, having them all come together and say, you know, what is the best approach for this finding? Because, you know, maybe this one might not be as straightforward as some of the other ones. That's what the thought process is for a lot of these high-risk pancreatic screening programs. Um, That's the envision for a lot of um, these programs when it comes to these not as straightforward um, thought processes. Yeah. Um, and so we utilize uh, an approach of an EUS and MRI that are alternating, which is also um, now as part of the AGA clinical practice update on pancreatic cancer screening in high-risk individuals that was that came out um, this year. Um, that's also part of that those recommendations as well. Um, and then they also uh, listed several other, parts of their update, um, which I think is really helpful for um, programs to really make sure that they have other aspects to really kind of guide them and kind of have um, kind of bullet point out their programs of how they how they follow their patients. Um, and then NCCN also published uh, recommendations as well for their guidelines for pancreatic screening, which I think really really pushed pancreatic screening into kind of a spotlight. So we no longer just went from um, this the small bullet point that we had when when I graduated from grad school where it said, you know, consider pancreatic screening for 
um, in a in a protocol setting, which we all knew to do. But then we were thinking, you know, how do we do it? When do we do it? How often? What do we do? And, then, and where if and if you're going to do it in this in a under a research study protocol, like where do you even find that research study? <laughs> exactly. Um, and then and now it's you know everyone that has a pancreatic cancer should get testing, um, which is which is great because it one some of that testing can it some of those test findings could help add to management options for patients. Um, sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do, um, which is information that their oncologists may take into consideration for them. Um, and then sometimes it is information that then their family members can get testing for to s- figure out if they could start doing high-risk pancreatic screening. And that um, would start at ages that are kind of dictated out by a lot of these different um, guidelines and consensus statements, at least um, kind of use these as a guide. And then a lot of the programs um, kind of have established protocols as well. And um, the purpose of these screening programs is to look for these, look for precancerous findings, basically. So, you know, when you do a colonoscopy, um, well, you probably don't do colonoscopies very frequently, Eleanor. <laughs> you know, when a colonoscopy is done, exactly. So, um, but when colonoscopies are done, when they, if they do find a polyp, um, the thought process is that if a polyp could develop into cancer, the thought process is that those take about ten years to develop into colon cancer. When we look at pancreatic cancers, a lot of the kind of um, lesions that could develop into pancreatic cancer, those could take about 15 years to develop into pancreatic cancer. Hmm. So it's much longer than I would have thought. Exactly. So the thing is, is that there's this huge screening window for the people that make sense to do screening. So it's a great option for those that you know, that it makes sense to screen. So if someone in the family is found to have a genetic risk, making sure that the other family members know to get genetic testing to clarify, hey, do they make sense to get test to get screening? And then, you know, when do they start screening? And then there's this huge screening window. And the purpose of screening is to actually find these lesions, take them out before they actually become pancreatic cancer. Because as you mentioned, unfortunately, a lot of pancreatic cancers, you know, it, it, it doesn't, we don't have as many great options for them right now. So for these high risk screening options, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibility there. Yeah. What would you say to someone who's listening and has a family history of pancreatic cancer? I would say that it would be, uh, it could be very beneficial to speak with a genetic counselor. Um, talk to your family first, and you know, ask them about: Have you ever heard of any family history of cancer in general? Any kind of of fa- uh, family history of that? Um, also, ask about pancreatitis as well, because sometimes pancreatitis could 
contribute to that um, family history um, uh, GI-wise with regards to pancreatic cancer. And I think that when you're evaluating for pancreatic cancer, pancreatitis history is also, it can be important, not always, but it can be. And when you, if you want to learn more about your risk, speaking with a genetic counselor um, could be very valuable for you. You could see that as an appointment to just learn about information. You don't necessarily have to do genetic testing, but it could be an option for you. And the information that you could learn for that from that is that you could learn that you might qualify for changes to your care that might end up being preventative. It might end up finding information that could um, help you reduce your risk or not in certain areas, but for pancreatic cancer, it could at least put you in a category where we could at least offer you screening. If you were offered genetic testing and it did not find anything with regards to pancreatic cancer, um, it might it might not necessarily mean that there is no risk in your family. It might mean that maybe we just haven't found anything yet, but at least opens the door in terms of communication about that information. Um, and you could also learn about environmental risk factors with regards to your family history. And all of those can be very helpful in terms of learning about your personal care. When we are thinking about doing genetic counseling, I think it's also important to remember that each of us might have different timings for when we are ready for this information. So, I mean, even in families that I've met with, I've had, you know, that woman that had a breast and pancreatic cancer, she had three kids that, um, you know, two of them were ready to pursue genetic counseling and testing. And she had one kid that, you know, I say kid, but he was an adult. But, you know, anytime that someone has children, they are always kids because, you know, even my 100-year-old grandfather, I called him kiddo. <laughs> so, you know, we're all always a kid at heart. But but um, her one of her children did not want to pursue testing. And that might just you know, he might not have been ready for the information. It might have, you know, he was concerned about the testing aspect um, with regards to his profession, which I talked to him about. Um, but the thing, the thing is, is that every patient that I've talked to, um, I always remind them that you could have grown up in the same house with all of your siblings, and you might not all make the same decision about testing. You might it, even if you do make the same decision, you might not all make the same decision about what you do with that information or when you use that information. I mean, we've I've had the same actual experience um, with my, you know, in in my family, actually, uh, my my mom actually got diagnosed with breast cancer about a year into when I was counseling and mm -hmm. she she waited a couple of years to actually pursue genetic testing. You know, she waited until she felt comfortable to pursue testing, which, you know, that was, that was her decision. You know, we, she uh, felt that that was when she could handle doing genetic testing. And, you know, it happened to be that the timing of when she pursued testing happened to be when panels started. So 
you know, in, in hindsight, that was a great decision because otherwise she might have pursued testing and then might have had to go and had to have pursued testing again because there was a huge update in genetic testing that became available for her. And so luckily her testing was negative, but... Um, but it was a more comprehensive, meaningful negative. Right. So, I mean, you know, sometimes the timing of everything... I mean, I, I feel that a lot of times when we look at situations, it's really important to remember that, you know, even for our family members, you don't necessarily know exactly the right thing to do until you're in that situation. You know, even as a genetic counselor, I still think you can get a lot of information out of genetic testing, but the timing is important. And, you know, even when it when something came up in my immediate family, you know, the timing of it, you know, I still told my mom that, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with, you know, I was, you know, I gave my two cents, but I also said, you know, I feel that whatever you feel comfortable with, then that's the appropriate thing to do because you don't want someone to learn about information and then realize that they were not ready for that. And I feel everyone kind of has a sense of what they can handle and when they can handle it. And if people want to book an appointment with you, you are listed on the Gray Genetics Network, and we will include a link to your bio page with your booking link in the show notes. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, Leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.